It starts with an artful genealogy, and it ends with the Great Commission. This is the Gospel of Matthew. God fulfills absolutely every promise he makes. His perfect faithfulness spans decades, encompasses centuries, crosses millennia. We have studied Ruth, a prequel to the Gospels. Today, we explore the fulfillment. After this, we will experience Isaiah, observing Christ's perfect fulfillment of everything that was foretold about him. Matthew 3:16 and 17 read, When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the fulfillment of all hope prophesied in the Old Testament. He stands at the apex of Scripture. All of history has always been His story. He is our hope. He is our Savior. In Him alone, we can find fulfillment. His name is Jesus. This has the potential to be a dangerous sermon as we study a text on blasphemy. I mean, this passage has everything. Demon possession, blasphemy, parables, the reason for the parables. This is Jesus giving a passage that is often misunderstood and therefore seldom taught. This comes from Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 22, but I have some other passage I want to give as context running into it. Back to the very beginning, zoom way out. We have an enemy. We have an adversary. Even if you are my skeptical friend, I'll bet I don't have to convince you at all that evil exists in this world. You've seen evil. Oftentimes, my skeptical friends are more apt to name evil than they are moral good. You're more likely to acknowledge that the devil exists than God this has been the case since the beginning. Here's Genesis chapter three. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord, had, the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? There it is right there, the classic formula of the devil to bring into question what God actually said. You can't eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden. See, what happens when you don't know your word? The Bible was this thick in Eden. And it came in King James, NIV, and CSB. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. Here's the outright defiance of what God had said. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And here it is, the classic formula for all heresy, every false religion in the world adding on to the word of God. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Adam was right there. He was the original recipient of the very clear singular command from God, and he participates. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This was the fall. The serpent, who uh, ontologically is the devil, see Revelation 12. In the very first book of the Bible, we see this serpent, 
And then the very last book of the Bible, we see that serpent named, just for clarity, we all knew all along, we see that is in fact the devil who's been deceiving mankind since the beginning. There it is, the original sin, the original deception. And then in the end of days, in Revelation 12, we see it revealed that that has been the devil all along. So who is the devil? Here's what Ezekiel 28 gives. It's this teaching about the king of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, Tyre and Sidon were these areas known for, known for their, their pagan practices. In fact, in our, in our gospel narrative, we've seen a woman from the area of Tyre and Sidon who comes to Jesus. She is a Canaanite. She's from Tyre. She's from Sidon, but she knows that Jesus is able to heal. It's another controversial and often misunderstood text when she conveys herself to a dog trying to eat the scraps off the master's table. What she's talking about is, I am a Gentile, but I know that the promise that God made to Abraham goes beyond even ethnic Israel. So this woman was from Tyre and Sidon. It's incredibly, it's incredibly rare for someone from that area, from that region to have known about the truth of God. We've also seen Sire, uh, Tyre and Sidon named in Jesus's woes, these proclamation of woe upon various areas where he would perform miracles right in front of them and they still wouldn't believe. At one point he said, it will be better for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. The king of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, has this incredible, striking parallel to the life of Lucifer, this fallen angel, chief among demons, the serpent himself, who brought with him a third of the angels of heaven. This is a parallel passage with striking duality to it, as it speaks both about a literal physical man who existed on the earth. He was the king of a real physical nation, the, of the, the nation of Tyre, but then also the prince of the spirit of the air, as he's known, being given a certain level of jurisdiction here, a certain modicum of freedom wherein to tempt us. You know that well. So look at how this passage both describes a physical man and then also spiritual evil incarnate. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every kind of precious stone covered you. Carnelian, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and japper, lapis lazuli, turquoise, and emerald. Your mountings and settings were crafted in gold, and they were prepared on the day you were created. You were an anointed guardian cherub, for I had appointed you. You ever wonder where that teaching comes from, or the idea of Satan being a fallen angel, Here, here's one of the passages. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. From the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways until wickedness was found in you. Through the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. See the parallels between the actual king of Tyre, this coastal city, and the prince of demons, Satan. So I expelled you in disgrace from the mountain of God and banished you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud because of your beauty. Here it is. That's how it begins. Right there. Right there. For the sake of your splendor, you corrupted your wisdom. So I threw you down to the ground. I made you a spectacle before kings. See how now we're oscillating back into a description of an actual king with simultaneity 
also describing Satan himself. You profaned your sanctuaries by the magnitude of your iniquities and your dishonest trade. Again, back to the actual physical king of Tyre. So I made fire come from within you and it consumed you. Look at this. This is where the fire came from. It came from within. I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of everyone watching you. The imagery of fire in hell largely comes from something we've talk, talked about before. See our final sermon in the series, Radical Family, where this practice of in worship of Molech and Chemosh sacrificing one's children in fire, God said, I will subject you to what you subjected your children to. And so it's named, uh, this is where we get the name for hell, Gehenna, Topheth, right? This, this place outside of the camp of Jerusalem where uh, which at one point, one king of Israel tried to turn into a dump, basically, where garbage was burned. This became the object lesson used by the prophets to teach about hell. But we also see that there's fire that consumes the devil. And just wait, before the end of the sermon, you're going to see God use that very same fire as well to consume the Antichrist, his forerunner, death, and the devil. All those who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become an object of horror and will never exist again. This is profound because it describes annihilation. When we talk about the, the fate of human souls, we exist forever. But we see an annihilation awaiting evil himself. What began as pride, this desire, this, this covetousness of the glory of God, saying to himself that I will become like the Most High, that, I believe, is what Ezekiel is describing in the fire that came from within that eventually consumed Lucifer. So this devil, he has been contorting the word of God, defying the word of God. He has been trying to claw his way to have just some of the glory that is ascribed to God for himself. He is desperately covetous. He lacks utterly the capacity to create. That power lies exclusively with God the Father. What he can only do is manipulate, distort, pervert. He can only take something good which God has created and then turn it into the catalyst for a temptation unto evil. God creates something good like food and then with it, the devil contorts it into gluttony. God creates something good like sex. Welcome to the Redemption Church. Like and subscribe. And then the devil takes it and contorts it and produces with it lust. Do you see the distinction? God creates something. And every time God created something, throughout the rhythmic, cyclical production process of the universe, over the course of six days, followed by a seventh day of rest, God looked at everything that he created and he said that it was what, Redemption Church? Good. God created everything and it was good. And then the devil comes along. You can see here that angels then, in a, in, a, in a sort of prehistory of man as we perceive it, because at the beginning of creation comes the beginning of how we measure time. We exist with infinitude now, and we can, in principle, count time backwards into infinity, but time had to have a beginning. Otherwise, you couldn't count time because you wouldn't exist. And so God created the heavens and the earth, and the very first words of the Bible are in the what, Redemption Church? 
In the beginning, do you see how God creates time right then and there? Though it is measurable in infinity past beyond that, we know that that's where time itself begins. God as a timeless, eternal being created time itself. This is necessary. Were it not for this attribute of God's, nothing physical could exist because that which is physical is subject to entropy and evidently sin, fallenness. Everything was perfect in Eden. And then in a prehistory of angels from our perspective, again, I say from our perspective because we are temporal beings. Angels also abide within time, see the narrative throughout Revelation. However, Satan himself tried to take some of the glory of God for himself, and as a result was cast down. And then he is allowed in the garden, and he speaks to Adam and Eve. We do, in fact, biblically we see evidence of this. We do have the capacity for free will, but don't go too far with that. Don't let that be the basis for your whole soteriology, the study of how people are saved. Because we don't have a whole lot of great stuff to show for our free will, do we? We have the ability to mess up. Congratulations. You have the ability to disobey God. That's not something to be overly ecstatic about. So Satan tempts, man falls, all of creation falls with it. In Romans 8, it describes all of creation as though it's groaning. Right? That things are not the way they were supposed to be. Have you ever sensed this about the world? That there's such beauty here. Man, you can just see these glimpses of Eden every now and then. In our rearview mirror, as we drove here on I-90, we could see the sun rising over Tiger Mountain behind us. And it was just glorious. It's incredibly beautiful. It's absolutely amazing. You get these beautiful glimpses of Eden here, but you also know, you also know there are terrible things that happen. This is a fallen world. My niece, Elle, woke up on my birthday in 2015. It was unresponsive. Found out that she had tumor in her brain. Three months later, she was gone. Beautiful three-year-old little girl. Long, curly, blonde hair, just like my daughter, Autumn Grace's. And she passed away. Cancer in three-year-old children. Are you kidding me? This is the result of sin in our world. Not even L's sin. It's a sin-stained world. Evil has afflicted this once perfectly beautiful place. But did you know that there is a plan that is in motion whose final date has already said whereupon redemption takes place. And there is no affliction on this earth that cannot be completely healed in heaven forevermore. We, in the meantime, find ourselves likewise subjected to a modicum of the devil's freedom. He does not get to attack you to the extent that he wants. He has to go before the throne and ask for permission. God will give him parameters. We see this in the book of Job. We see Jesus tell this to Peter. Satan has, attempt, has asked for permission to sift you like wheat, but I'm praying for you that your faith will survive, Jesus said to Peter. So Jesus, in his infinite knowledge, his union with the Father, subjecting himself to the will of the Father, told Peter something in the temporal realm that had happened behind the curtain of eternity. The devil has just asked God the Father for permission to beat the daylights out of you, Peter. 
but I'm praying for you that your faith will survive. This is what the devil does to our lives. This is what sin does in our lives. This is, this is the effect of a fallen world, and it all started in Eden. But there is a final date whereupon God says, enough, no more, and he will ride in on his war horse to slay the devil and evil and even death itself forevermore. Amen, Redemption Church? This is what the Word of God says. So in the meantime, today, right here, where you sit, your words that you say, they have bearing on the condition of your soul. Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The words you say will either condemn you or by the power of the Holy Spirit confessing Jesus as Lord, you will be saved. Here's Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him. He healed him so that the man could both speak and see. All the crowds were astounded and said, could this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Let's talk about this. This was covered briefly in our, in our, uh, our devotion text this week. But I want to give somebody who's, who's not heard this yet just up to speed really quick, to call Jesus the son of David. What does that mean? I thought that he was the son of God. I also thought that there was a dude named Joseph who was involved but not involved. Who is David? What kind of, what kind of family situation is this? Jesus, son of David, means Jesus, the one prophesied to be on the throne that would never end. The son of David, the descendant from the line of David, who would be both king of Israel and king of the universe. This is to call Jesus the son of David, this is a proclamation of belief that he is the Lord, the anointed one, the Christ, as prophesied by the Old Testament. So the crowd see Jesus, like heal a man, deliver a man from demonic possession. The symptoms of this particular demonic possession were the fact that he was blind and he was also unable to speak. That is not the case for everyone who is mutant, everyone who is blind, obviously. Right? This is the case for this particular man. He at, once at one time was able to see and at one time was able to speak, but because of demonic possession, he was not able to speak. And so Jesus healed him, and then he could speak and he could see. This demonic possession thing, what is this about, Jesse? Because this is going to be a theme throughout this text, throughout this portion of, uh, of, uh, of the Gospel of Matthew. It both begins and ends it. But the final portion, the teaching that Jesus gives about the binding of the strong man, the deliverance from a demon, and then more demons rushing in, is sometimes misattributed. It's not so much about demonic possession. Demonic possession is the metaphor within the metaphor. It's really a teaching about the state of Israel. So demonic possession occurs when a demon would actually, for instance, within certain parameters, override the free will capacity of a human being. We see that Judas, upon betraying Jesus, actually is possessed of Satan. The text says that Satan entered him. He had been prompted by the devil to betray Jesus. We see numerous people who are possessed by demons. We even see in the Gospel of Mark a young boy who was possessed by a demon that would try to throw the boy into fire. 
and to water, who cause him to foam at the mouth. We see already, we've already seen people in this text who were unable to speak because of demonic possession and they were cast out. We've seen demons ask Jesus for permission to inhabit a herd of pigs. Look at that. They can't even herd a pig without permission from God. And they're so petrified of Jesus, they would rather inhabit a herd of pigs and run off a cliff than be anywhere near him. They look to Jesus and they ask, have you come to torment us before the appointed time? What does this indicate? They know, these demons know that their time is coming. But in the meantime, they are flailing and doing as much damage as they possibly can before justice comes upon them. So Jesus, in full view of everybody, heals a man. He has been inhabited by demons, and now suddenly that man's able to see. That man's able to speak, and the crowd begins to believe in Jesus. And the Pharisees can't stand this. They cannot stand it. Rather than in full face view of miraculous proof that Jesus is Lord, fall to their knees and confess that he's Lord. They accuse him of having done this by the power of Satan. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebul. Right? You can see how this evokes the name of Baal or Baal, this ancient pagan god. They're accusing Jesus of being in consort with the ruler of demons. That is perfectly wrong. It is so polar, the opposite of reality. It is fatuous. It is absolutely absurd. It doesn't even hold logic on its own ground. And Jesus points this out. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. It's a famous speech by the greatest president in the history of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Speaking on the calamity of civil war. But when we see in context what this passage was about and the one about whom Jesus was speaking when he said it, it kind of takes a little bit of something away from the speech for me, I'll be honest. It's a true statement. It's a truism. But Jesus was talking about the house of the devil. The house of the devil, if divided against itself, could not stand. That's the original text in Matthew chapter 12, verses 25 through 27. So again, Jesus calls them out on their thoughts. Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. He just points out the basic logical fallacy behind their accusation. You're accusing me of using the power of the devil to set people free from demonic possession? Am I hearing you right, Carl? That's the Jesse Campbell translation. It's not how the text actually says it. That's just how I picture it happening in my head. He's, he's right. It's logically fallacious to say that the devil would deliver somebody from demonic possession. 
But what about verse, verse 27? If I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? The Pharisees had their own, they had their own disciples, their own little team, okay? And, and this, these, guys, uh, these, these guys would at least, you know, ostensibly deliver people from demonic possession, which is a fascinating case in and of itself, right? Because now in the New Testament, we see we're, we're taught clearly, like in the book of Jude, which we'll reference today, that by, we ask God to cast out demons, to, ca- to rebuke the devil the, in the name of Jesus, that demons are exercised. But by what name were they exercised in the Old Testament? Right? How would you do such a thing carefully observing and revering, not taking in vain the tetragrammaton, Yahweh, Jehovah, the name the Lord. When you read your Bible and you see the word Lord in all caps, though lowercase size, have you ever noticed that? L is capitalized. O, well, it's always hard to tell the difference anyway. There's a, there's a small uppercase R and a small uppercase D. In English Bible translations, I learned this because I was, I was working at Lifeway when we launched the CSB. That, that means that in the original Hebrew text, it was rendered Yahweh or Jehovah. yod He vav He are the Hebrew letters, and it renders it unpronounceable. It's similar to like Y-H-V-H or J-H-W-H. Hence the words Yahweh and Jehovah are actually both attempts to pronounce the unpronounceable. And this unpronounceable name is the one name that we're told, look, don't mess with this name. Don't take my name in vain, says the Lord. It's one of the, one of the commandments. So I don't know how Old Testament Pharisees were actually able to exercise demons. I don't know by what name they did it or if they actually did it. However, Jesus is asking a question. He's calling them to task. He's just publicly prima facie, obviously delivered a man from demonic possession. And then he's asking in response to the Pharisees' accusation, by whom do your sons drive them out? Look, there's, this, is, this, is, uh, this is bad news for the Pharisees because Jesus is exactly right, of course. The devil's not gonna cast out devils, but you've just watched me cast out devils. So if it's not the, by the devil that I do this, it's by fill in the blank Pharisees, God you're in trouble. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That strikes terror into my heart because I'm aware of my sin, that the kingdom of God would come near and I have sin in my life. God, have mercy on a sinner like me. But this was not the posture of the Pharisees. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possession unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. So this house, this is Israel. We're gonna see as we continue through the biblical text, the fact that, man, Israel was in rough shape. As we go in and we reach chapter 21 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is going to stop being, he's going to stop being covert. He's going to become increasingly overt and even righteously hostile toward the devil, frankly. He's going to start calling the Pharisees children of the devil. I mean, wow, wow. And he's going to tell them overtly, you've been the bad guys in my parables all along. 
and he's going to hold them responsible for what generations of their predecessors had done, killing the prophets of God. God had sent them prophets, see Ezekiel through Malachi. In a way, John the Baptist is kind of like the He's kind of like the grand finale of the prophets and also the forerunner to the Messiah. God had sent them prophet after prophet after prophet. They didn't listen to the prophets. They ignored Jeremiah. The king of Judah would immediately throw away all of Jeremiah's prophecies. Aren't you grateful that Jeremiah had extra copies of his prophecies there produced by his amanuensis? And he didn't know. The king of Judah wouldn't listen to him, but you and I have. He would actually reach countless millions of people The prophets were even slain for saying what God told them to say. So for generations, prophets were slain. And now here comes the son of man. Here comes God's own son himself, fully human, fully divine, speaking the truth to them. And guess what they're going to do to him? They're going to kill him too. This is horrible news. The house of God had been set in order by At one point, the judges, that was a really rough period. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And then the prophets, and we see God come and speak to them. But then as they kill the prophets, they tie up the strong man, they plunder the house. Anyone who is not with me is against me. This is rightly polemical and true. It's not possible to be neutral in the kingdom of God. Sin is the worst thing in your life. Your sin is your biggest problem. Repent from it. Because when we sin, we give into the sin nature. We're doing what leads to death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Our sin puts us at odds with God. And there's nothing benign in this world in that regard. And so if we are not doing the will of God, if we're not with Jesus... Jesus himself says, who is not with me is against me. Do you see this, my skeptical friend? You cannot ride the fence. A holy God gave his son. He's the only savior. You either believe or you remain by default condemned by the sin that you and I were both born into. The same sin nature that every now and then gets the best of me too. The difference being I repent when I sin. I have the Holy Spirit of God who convicts me for sin and draws me deeper and deeper into holiness. Whoever's not with God is against him. You cannot remain neutral. My skeptical friend, do not walk out of this building without having adhered to the gospel invitation that is given you because if you died today, you would not go to heaven. If you're not with God, you are against him. To choose not to make a decision regarding Jesus' claims that he's Lord is to choose not to worship him. By default, if you do not confess Jesus as Lord, you are by default, as per Jesus, Matthew 12, verse 30, against God. Anyone who does not gather with me scatters. This is why our church was planted on the gospel of John, the very gospel that was written to convert Gentiles and still does today, why we immediately went to evangelism training, apologetics training, so that you could Gather, gather with God. Anyone who does not gather, scatters. Here's Matthew 12, verse 31. Therefore, I tell you, 
People will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the, the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the one to come. There it is. One of the most controversial teachings of Jesus' ministry. This word blasphemy, it actually became the subject of pop culture for a little bit. There was this internet trend that made its way around, as many of them do. And uh, some of this was kind of spurred on actually by the, like a comedian and magician that I've always found really funny and I'd find him to be really, really brilliant. And at times even quite charitable and fair toward Christianity, Penn Gillette. He has a show that goes on in Vegas all the time along with uh, a guy named Teller and he's, he's an outspoken atheist. And there are times in which he's actually expressed his views on Christianity such that I, I actually really, really respected this about him. He actually does not respect Christians who don't evangelize. He says, if you believe that I'm going to hell and you don't tell me this, it's like watching a semi-truck, a Mack truck, I think is the example that he used, coming at me. And if you, there comes a point at which you're gonna push me out of the way because you're not gonna just stand there and watch it happen. So for that reason, he has no respect, he says, for Christians who do not evangelize. He's usually pretty spot on. But in this particular case, in this regard, when it came to blasphemy, he didn't read. He just didn't read. He was one of multiple personalities, multiple authors and people who were all kind of stoking the fire of this internet trend called the blasphemy challenge. And it's, it's kind of funny because there's not one of them who actually truly committed blasphemy. The idea was like, prove your mettle as a non-believer. Consider it for a moment. See the irony? And let the and 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 go on video saying that you don't believe in the Holy Spirit of God. And then kids would do it, and then do backflips off their rooftop into a pool and things like this. And it's the most ridiculous thing ever because not one of them actually truly committed blasphemy. They didn't get it. They don't understand what's actually going on here. Leviticus chapter twenty-four verse fourteen describes, prescribes rather, the punishment as per God for blasphemy. Bring the one who has cursed to the outside of the camp and have all who have heard him lay their hands on his head, then have the whole community stone him and tell the Israelites, if anyone curses his God, he will bear the consequences of his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The whole community is to stone him. If he blasphemes the name, he is to be put to death, whether the resident alien or the native. This is serious stuff. This is an Old Testament command to put someone to death for cursing God, reviling God. In a sense, giving the middle finger to God and, and ascribing to him evil. Blaming God for evil, cursing and reviling God. This is what Leviticus 24 prescribed outright public, you know, capital punishment for. It's very, very serious sin in the Old Testament. It was not something to be taken lightly. In Jude, 
8 through 10. Remember, Jude is only one chapter long, like some other books of the New Testament. So we say Jude 8 through 10. Don't worry, I'm not about to, I'm not about to, to, to read three chapters of Jude here. In the same way, these people, relying on their dreams, defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. Yet when Michael, the archangel, was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand. And what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. The blasphemy challenge fell woefully short of true, actual blasphemy. Here's why. Jesus had just visibly delivered a man from demon possession. The Pharisees called him the devil, basically. The only way that you and I could blaspheme on par with what the Pharisees had done was to be physically present when Jesus did this and to say that he did it by the power of the devil. That's the only way. Not by just talking into your phone and saying, saying the word blasphemy. <laughs> right? like not just proclaiming your disbelief in God. All right? that's, not how it, that's not how it works. That's not what true blasphemy is. The only way to do that is to get in a time machine with your smartphone and then go back and then take the selfie alongside these Pharisees looking at Jesus as he has just delivered a man from demon possession and then to say he did it by the power of the devil. That would actually be on par with what took place. Here's the Mark, here, here's Mark's gospel's similar teaching on blasphemy. Notice something here. Jesus would repeat his teachings in different contexts. That's why oftentimes I, I for, for years, got hung up trying to harmonize the Gospels. And one of my favorite books in this world is Christ Chronological, where it just has all four Gospels color-coded next to each other, congruent with one another. But there are various instances in which two teachings that are parallel to each other are actually describing different instances. Jesus did, in fact, repeat himself. He would repeat the same teaching in one context that he had given in another so oftentimes we don't need to parse through and try to harmonize every teaching. Here's a teaching about blasphemy from Mark chapter three. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. Do you see this? Look at that. People will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. If you, after finding out that your loved one had cancer, walked out, Inside the hospital and shouted at the sky in anger against God, blaspheming. Do you see this? People will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So do you see this present tense right here? Never has forgiveness. This is sometimes called the unforgivable sin, but that's not accurate. To call a sin unforgivable is to presuppose that the sacrifice of Christ and the cross were insufficient to atone for that particular sin. While we do see a graduation of the severity of various sins, 
This is not the unforgivable sin, because to call a sin unforgivable would be to, would be to presuppose that Christ's sacrifice on the cross were not sufficient to atone for this particular sin. That is to diminish the cross, to diminish Jesus. But his character is unassailable. His holiness is perfection. He is the sinless one. Amen, Redemption Church? So anyone who blasphemes and repents, confessing Jesus as Lord, will be forgiven for their blasphemies. But this blasphemy was against the very Holy Spirit of God in full view of proof that Jesus was Lord. I mean, what more could God have done to prove to the Pharisees that he was Lord? There just comes a time at which God would render them over to the hardness of their hearts. You and I lack the ability to blaspheme to the capacity that the Pharisees just had. For example, Paul, the apostle, who was once more prominently known by his birth name, Saul of Tarsus. He also had the name of Paul's more Greco-Roman friendly name, but he at one point was a blasphemer. And yet he not only was saved, but became the author of much of the New Testament. Here's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry, even though I was formerly a, look at this, blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them. But I receive mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. While verse 17 is all the more striking, we know that it was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by a former blasphemer. He's not blaspheming anymore, is he, Redemption Church? Wow, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. I mean, like, wow, the doxology just soars from this former blasphemer. Anyone who utters blasphemies against God would be forgiven. You confess Jesus as Lord and repent from your sin. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age or the next because he has committed an eternal sin. Right, we know, we also saw this as well in, in our Matthew text. Look, here's Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. Start at the very first clause. Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy. You see, that, see how lazy the blasphemy challenge was? People will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy. Do you see this? Like, read the book. Like, it's the best-selling book of all time. Nobody's hiding it. It's available in your pocket in like 400 translations and on the internet, wherever you go, even the interstate. I checked. Like, nobody's hiding this. The, the ignorance is just confounding to me. What is unforgivable, so to speak, is actually that which will not be forgiven. That's what the text actually says. It is never called the unforgivable sin. 
It says it will not be forgiven. Do you see that? Why will it not be forgiven? Because the person who commits this sin will never repent from it. There are Christians in the Bible who commit blasphemy and are forgiven. We've already seen Paul, but there are more examples. Here's 1 Timothy again, chapter, chapter uh, 1, verse 18. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan so that may, they may be taught not to, what, Redemption Church? Blaspheme. The hope was that Hymenaeus and Alexander, who are Christians, would be handed over temporarily to the devil, not so that they would somehow lose their salvation, but so they would learn a lesson not to blaspheme, not to revile God not to accuse him of evil. Job, after having lost everything and everyone, did not sin by accusing God of wrongdoing. Now that's hard because he had just lost his children, all of them, in an instant. If you've ever suffered loss due to a natural disaster, colloquially referred to as an act of God in the emergency room? Did you know that the devil has been given jurisdiction over, even at times, biblically proven the elements? All right, you hear me, my skeptical friend? Did you know that the, biblically, the devil in the book of Job was given the ability to produce tornadoes, for example, that wiped out entire households? Not everything that happens in this world was the enacted will of God. It may be allowed by God, but it is the scandal of the millennia that the devil would work evil and then God would be blamed for it. Do not ascribe to God that which the devil has done. That is, in fact, blasphemy. Why? Why does the devil always get off the hook? Why is no one mad at the devil when we suffer, when disasters take place, when cancer strikes? That is scandalous, and it is literally blasphemous to accuse God of having done evil when we have biblical proof and an example that the devil is the one who is responsible and the devil is the one who will be brought to justice within this beautiful, perfect, redemptive plan of God. I've lost a child. I know firsthand. I taught this at a conference for bereaved parents. And you'd be amazed. It was beautiful to behold, but difficult to experience as parents who had blasphemed against God in their loss came forward to the altar to repent of that sin. And then to hear them describe the fellowship with God restored as they now place the blame rightly rather than in blasphemy ascribing to God that which is evil with biblical precision, understanding that the devil is the one responsible here and God is bringing about redemption. Wow, when that bitterness in their heart toward the only one who could save them and the only hope they had of ever seeing their child again 
disappeared. And now they were able to fellowship and commune with him and have healing in their souls. Have you blasphemed God? Have you accused him of wrongdoing? Have you ascribed to him that which is evil? Have you blamed him for what the devil has done? This is blasphemy in the sense that will be forgiven. If you blaspheme against, however, the Spirit, as the Pharisees did, in full view of incontrovertible proof that Jesus was Lord, watched him literally kick demons out and say that he did it by the prince of demons. Okay. No more miracles for you. In fact, in the next chapter, Jesus goes back to teaching, teaching in parables because they don't get the truth. They're not allowed to know anymore. Okay, look, we've sent you the prophets. You have the word of Moses. You have God himself. And later on in this passage, spoiler, they're gonna ask him for another sign for crying out loud. Like how many more miracles do they need to see? How many more healing of the paralytics, healing of the blind, healing of the mute, delivering of the demoniacs? How many more signs do they need? The truth is they've had over an abundance already. This is why I'm skeptical. When I engage a skeptic, I'm skeptical of my skeptical friends when they say, I just need some evidence. The problem with this is that it puts you in the judge's seat, first of all, because the judge is the one who evaluates evidence. God is in fact the judge. You have no excuse. The eternal power and divine nature of God have been clearly seen through everything that exists. You and I are without excuse, okay? Get real. You know the truth that God exists. You know it. But you suppress that truth. And the really reality is you, you, just, you suppress it so that you can rationalize sin. This is what Romans 1 says. And it's been true of every atheist I've ever led to Christ. So get real. I'm skeptical of your skepticism. My skeptical friend, you know it. Deep down in the dark, at night, looking at your ceiling, you know. You just simply know it's true. So, what are we to do when the Holy Spirit of God is moving among us here at the Redemption Church? When we likewise can open up his word, we can see the goodness of the word of God. We have a, a worship band that comes up. And even though the drummer overplays a lot, they sound really great. And they lead us in worship and the Holy Spirit moves on hearts. And we get to experience this just glimpse of heaven when we in worship go before the throne of God and we worship in spirit and in truth, just as Jesus taught we would in John chapter four. And it's like, do you ever feel like in a moment of worship that you're right there at the door of heaven and you can see the light emanating through the cracks. You can just see that the hinges are shaking and trembling to try to contain the glory of the angelic choir in heaven above. And we join in with them as we sing and we almost reach our hand out. And we just touch the warm handle to the throne room of heaven and then, Oh man, it's time to go back to work on Monday. You know what I'm talking about? Isn't that what worship is like to you? If not, you haven't worshiped yet, friend. Come, you got one more chance today. Oh, you know what I'm talking about? Those moments where heaven is just right here and our prayers are answered just as Jesus taught us to pray. Have your will done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring your kingdom right here. 
But watch out. This is where this sermon becomes dangerous, my skeptical friend. If you taste of that heavenly gift, you experience the Holy Spirit. You get this glimpse of the power of the age to come. You likewise may then say, no, I'm going to choose my sin. Be careful because God just might treat you with perfect fairness and give you exactly what you demand and insist upon. Your sin and everything that it leads to, which is death. It is impossible, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 says, to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to public contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain often falls on it and it produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and at the end will be burned. The book of Hebrews was written, I believe, by Apollos to the church of Jewish Christians. It must have been hard to live at the apex upon which the old covenant pivoted into the new covenant. That must have been hard. You have to have a little bit of sympathy for the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, because they had become experts in an old covenant that was about to be replaced by something which the book of Hebrews describes as better by far. And your whole life you had adhered to the law of Moses and now suddenly the Gentiles are going to be on equal standing before God as you? Excuse me? I, I love shellfish, but I don't go to Joe's Crab Shack after church because you said not to God. And now these Gentiles who have been eating shellfish every day it seems, now all of a sudden they're on equal footing with you? Excuse me, God, that doesn't feel fair at all. No, it is not fair. It is grace. It is grace. I'm glad it's not fair because if it were fair, I would go straight to hell because of my sin, but I'm not going to hell. This former sinner regenerated by the Holy Spirit, he gets to go to heaven. Sorry, bro. It's grace. I may not have adhered to the law of Moses. I was born into this new covenant. So you can imagine what it was like for the Hebrews to struggle. Peter even struggled. We see that in Galatians chapter two, there was this disagreement. Paul calls Peter out for his tendency to gravitate back toward the law of Moses, back to Old Testament dietary practices. He began to only associate with those who would adhere to Old Testament dietary law. And Paul confronts him to his face over this issue because it was hard for good Jewish kids growing up under this covenant and now to see it fulfilled, to see Messiah has come, the Messiah has arrived, everything is made new again. And now the law of God is fulfilled in Christ. And you can cut the hair on the sides of your head and you can wear clothing made out of two types of fabric, which is good because there's a lot of fabric in these jeans. Right? You, can, you can now eat shellfish. It was hard to let go of old practices. And so the Pharisees, they tried to interject things into the gospel. In the book of Acts chapter 15, you can see that they tried to add circumcision onto the moment of conversion. 
They're like, yeah, that's great. That's right. All you got to do to be saved is just confess Jesus as Lord. Plus, does that sound like Eden to you? Sound like Genesis 3, the classic formula for heresy? Plus, you got to be circumcised as a grown man. Surprise. They were called the Judaizers. Paul would call them the mutilators of the, fre- of the flesh. They caused a huge issue. And Acts chapter 15 and 16 deals with, uh, chapter 15 deals with that issue. The Pharisees kept trying to go back to the Old Testament law. And the book of Hebrews deals with this. Look, there, there is the ground that drinks the rain and produces fruit, right? In verse seven of Hebrews six, this is describing those Israelites who received the spirit of God and produced fruit that was consistent with repentance. They cultivated blessings from God. But then in verse eight, you see these blaspheming Pharisaical Jews who received the same rain, but instead produced thorns and thistles, kind of likening them to creation itself, producing thorns and thistles, right? I was thinking that yesterday, having to change out an ignition coil, my Honda Pilot, and wouldn't you know it, cylinder number one on a 2010 Honda is in the back right against the firewall. And your 686 extender is too long to get down the tube. How many mechanics know what I'm talking about right now? Yes. Thorns and thistles. I'm telling you, man, we may not be an agrarian society. have to like grow our own crops, although that's fun. Even if you work in IT, you've got thorns and thistles. Ever heard of McAfee? Yeah. Thorns and thistles, cursed creation, sin-stained world. I don't care if you never go outside, you still deal with thorns and thistles and have to labor men by the sweat of your brow in order to eat. You know exactly what I'm talking about. He likens these to cursed creation itself. Even though we are speaking this way, dearly loved friends, in your case, we are confident that of these things, uh, the, the, uh, of things that are better and that pertain to salvation, for God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and your love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. So in Hebrews 6, we see unregenerate believers who tasted of the heavenly gift, experienced the goodness of the word of God, and I got a glimpse of the power of the age to come. They saw Jesus, and they still fell away into sin, subjecting Jesus to public disgrace. It's impossible to re-crucify Jesus. Okay, what more could God possibly have done for this generation of Jews? The Pharisees who didn't believe. There were Pharisees who did believe. See Joseph of Arimathea. See Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But not all of them did. What more could God have done? They were the descendants of the witnesses of the most epic miracles in the Bible. The parting of the Red Sea, the moon turning to blood, the the falling, flaming hail for crying out loud, the plague of frogs. That one's kind of funny to me. they, They had borne witness the most epic miracles. They had walked across the floor of the Red Sea on dry ground. They'd been fed miraculously by God. They received the law of God written directly to them. They had supernaturally conquered the land of Canaan, been given over to them. They had been divinely blessed in all things, and yet, serially, generationally, they would not believe, they would not believe, they would not believe. When they were doing the will of God under the leadership of Joshua, they had unprecedented prosperity in the land flowing with milk and honey. And then, even to this day, Israel proper denies that Jesus is the Son of God. Even to this day, they're out of the will of God, but God is not done with Israel yet. In Revelation, we see this prophesied massive revival to come to the nation of Israel. Here's Matthew 12, verse 33. Either make 
the tree good and its fruit will be good or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, Jesus called the Pharisees. How can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good person produces good things from his storeroom of good. An evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. I tell you that on that day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. How many of you guys are gonna write that one on your fridge this week? Every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be acquitted and by your words, you will be condemned. This is striking. This was the case for the Pharisees. By their words, they would now, in fact, rightly and truly be condemned. They had just borne witness to the fact that Jesus is Lord. And they had denied that he's Lord. Moreover, they had called him evil. They had accused him of working by the power of evil. And and they had called him Beelzebul. And by those words, they are rightly condemned. The words you say matter. Would you say the words, Jesus is Lord, before we leave this theater today? Here's verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. This is also laughable. They had just watched him deliver a demoniac. They had, ju- they had watched him feed people miraculously. They would watch him heal the blind. They would watch him heal those who could not speak. And now they come to him and they ask for a sign. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Do you hear this, my skeptical friend? Stop asking for evidence. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest, but doesn't find any. Then it says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it finds its house vacant, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. That is how it will also be with this evil generation. This is why I'm, what I mean when I say that this teaching is sometimes misattributed to specifically demonic possession. It's describing the state of this generation of Israel. Now may the hope of God fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. What a lovely, inviting beautiful, redemptive alternative to being condemned by your words. Our blasphemies will be forgiven. Blaspheming against the Holy Spirit of God will not be forgiven because when we blaspheme against the Holy Spirit of God, we remain under the wrath of God. The person who commits such blasphemy will never repent and as a result is not saved, has never been saved. You will not become saved and then no longer saved if you say a certain collection of words. The one who is truly saved would never blaspheme the Holy Spirit. 
First John says that those who go out from us, it proves they were never really among us. So it is not true to say that you can be saved and then no longer saved. Once you are saved, the Bible is clear, you are adopted. The Holy Spirit is the down payment guaranteeing your inheritance. And by that spirit, you call him Abba, Father. God has made a promise, a covenant, a down payment, an adoption. So the one who would blaspheme the Holy Spirit then resists, reviles, ascribes evil unto that very spirit that would draw them unto salvation. And they are never saved. So they are never then forgiven. Here's what happens in the end to this devil. Here's what happens in the end to this evil spirit. This is what prompted the whole thing. Jesus delivered a man who was possessed by demons. Here's the ultimate fate of said demons and of evil itself. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Who is this woman? Is she Israel? Is that why there are 12 tribes and 12 stars? Is she Mary? Is she the church? Stay tuned for our series in Revelation. She was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads were seven crowns. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. This is where we get the idea of Satan as a fallen angel bringing with him a third of the angels. Now, I may have majored in percussion and not mathematics, but go with me on this. If Satan has one third of the angels and they become demons, what is the ratio of demons to angels? Is it not one to two? Is there not twice as many angels as there are demons? Which side are you on, bro? (laughs) Make sure it's the winning one because we've got literally twice your number, devil. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that when she did give birth, it might devour the child. This dragon represents ontologically Satan, but also typically it could represent Herod trying to kill the newborn baby Jesus within the first three years. She gave birth to a son, a male who was going to rule all nations with an iron rod. We see in Revelation 19, that's Jesus. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled to the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God to be nourished there 1,260 days. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of a loud thunder saying, hallelujah, because our Lord God, the almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, For the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Its rider was called Faithful and true. He judges and makes war with justice. His eyes are like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written on him that no one knows except for he himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress in fierce anger of God, the almighty. And he has 
has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus has come to conquer the devil forever, amen? Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he called out in a loud voice saying to all the birds flying overhead, come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of military commanders, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses and the riders and the flesh of everyone both free and slave and small and great. Then I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. This is the final showdown between Jesus, goodness itself, and evil personified. But the beast was taken prisoner. That's the Antichrist, as he's called. And along with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs in his presence. Don't be fooled. Not all miracles are God's miracles. He deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image with these signs. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider of the horse and the birds ate their fill of their flesh. Glory to God. The bad guys lose and get eaten. Amen. Man, I don't want to hear you say the Bible is boring. Listen to this stuff. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Uh Uh-oh. And will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog. Yes, I know. I've heard speculation is this Russia and China. It's possible, but they're not rich enough, I don't think. To gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever. That is the end of the devil, amen? That's what Jesus does. That's who wins. This war, the one who believes the son has eternal life. The one who rejects the son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. This is a dangerous sermon. Now that you've heard it, drawn upon by the spirit of God, if you reject Jesus today, I do not know if you have another chance to be saved. So let's stand together as we pray. You may have blasphemed. We've seen in both Matthew and Mark, the example of Paul in 1 Timothy, that God will forgive these blasphemies wherein we blame God for evil. But to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, this will not be forgiven because you will not repent of it. Would you today follow the call of God as the Spirit draws on your heart and the Father calls you by name, confess that Jesus is Lord. Let's go before God and pray. God, I find myself here in the midst of this war whose ending has already been written. You have twice as many. You've already won, Jesus. It's already written. It's already determined. But here I am, this side of Eden and that side of heaven. And God, in my freedom, I choose sin. But not anymore. Your Holy Spirit is drawn upon me. I may have blamed you, God, even simultaneously professing not to believe in you and also blaming you for evil. 
I see in your word, that was blasphemy. And like so many other kids who did the blasphemy challenge today, I'm saved. I confess the truth. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I see the truth that you are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. That you are the conqueror of Beelzebul. May I bear fruit consistent with repentance. God, I have tasted of the heavenly gift. I've gotten a glimpse of the power of the age to come. I've tasted the goodness of the word of God. And right here and now, your Holy Spirit's strong in my heart. It's just overwhelming. I can't deny the goodness. You're the victor. You're the king. You're the Lord of lords. You're the word of God. You're faithful. You're true. You're the creator. You're the savior. You're the king. You're the prince of peace. You're the wonderful counselor. You're the mighty God. You're the alpha. You're the omega. You're the creator and the conqueror. And right now, you're here. I confess my sin, God. I'm so sorry. Forgive me. Have mercy, oh God, on a sinner like me. I'm so sorry for my sin. I know what my sin leads to. It leads to death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And I'm so grateful, God. Only you, Jesus. Only you are the way, the truth the life, the Son of God, the risen King, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of David. I believe in you with all my heart right now. God, would you forgive me? Would you save me right now? By the power of the Holy Spirit that's strong on my soul, I confess the truth that I've always known, that's always been there, it's always been true, but today, With my tongue, I just say it out loud by the Spirit of God, drawn by the Father. Jesus is Lord. Would you say to the top of your lungs, Redemption Church, Jesus is Lord. Say it. Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart in the resurrection of Jesus. God, let me be saved, saved, saved. Once a blasphemer, once the worst of sinners, now an evangelist for Jesus. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. If that's you, would you come forward and let us know right here at the altar? Would you let us know on the connect card so we can schedule your baptism? Redemption Church, shall we worship together with one last song? Let's go before God. Let's sing to him.